thank you. Awesome, awesome. I was, I was doing my best to do some neck gymnastics to see who that was, but how many of you, this is the first time you're hearing me talk this, this week? Okay, good, a fair number of you. Awesome. Dive in section, uh, session six. That's perfect. That's, that's, you know, you're one of those folks who turns to the back of the book to see how it ends, you know, to see. And how many of you have been to every single session we've done so far? Wow, I should have given you like one of those frozen yogurt punch cards kind of thing, you know? You get a free session at the end. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, my, name is, my name is Blake, and I want to just uh, draw a little bit of a, of a picture of, of what we've been doing so far. Um, I'm excited to talk about what we're going to be talking about tonight, because it's something that's uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, because I think it's something that God is... Um, uh, it's going to be about where I believe that God's taking us as, as a church, and by a church, I mean the church. Um, so, you know, small subjects like that. Uh, but uh, for those of you who don't know, a big part of my testimony is that uh, for as long as I can remember, I've been seeing the Spirit, and so I see angels, demons, and other spiritual things, not so differently from the way that I'm seeing all of you right now. Is that, could we go with that? Cool. Okay. Uh, if you didn't know that, surprise. Um, uh, before we move on, actually, I took the, I took the liberty of uh, just kind of checking out some of the things that were going on during worship. Do you mind if I share that with you a little bit? Okay, cool. Um, so uh, I noticed as I as I came in that there was about uh, four or five angels all across the front of the stage here, um, and uh, they had these really uh, broad wings, and they were kind of reaching out with their wings, and they were leaning forward, and kind of there was this push-forward sort of, sort of motion. They were continuing that all throughout worship. And I noticed that as they started to do this, it felt, and even the way they were moving, it looked like there was almost like a, a tension on, on their wings, like there was kind of like they were pulling on something or pushing on something. And I just started to see this water seep up out of the stage. Like if you've ever uh, seen a, 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 like a water spring out in the wild or things like that, that kind of like seeping up out of the ground, bubbling up kind of, kind of look, and it just started coming out and, like, trickling at first, but then they kept on doing it, kept on doing it, and eventually, it was, by the end, it was gushing out, and it was, it's actually still doing that right now, it's just kind of bubbling up over the stage and, and pouring in, and what was cool at the end, when we did that fun little activation, was I just, um, the first part of it, I was kind of concentrating and participating, like a good student, um, but I opened my eyes at the end, and I saw that the water was running up uh, each of us as, as we were there. And right when it was getting to, to right here, I saw it come around and it turned into like a, a, a mist, like almost like it was instantly boiling or something like that and just blew out in a different direction for each person. It's like we were taking what God was doing and just kind of launching it in the different directions that we were praying into, which was, was kind of cool, I thought. Um, so that's uh, A, a quick demonstration, and B, just a little bit about what was going on during worship. So yeah, that's what I saw. Um, and so we, as, as mentioned before, this is uh, session, session six. That's a bit of a two-word tongue twister right there. Um, and so for the first session, we talked a lot about how the foundation of, of the gift of seeing in the Spirit, and I believe the foundation of every gift of the Spirit, is that they are meant to be rooted in God's love. They're meant to be rooted in His love, that the first purpose of spiritual gifts is to make us closer sons and daughters. The, the, the secondary purpose of all the spiritual gifts is to make us more effective servants, to, to help us serve the body and, and, and serve people outside the body. But their first purpose is to make us closer sons and daughters. 
And when that happens, honestly, we, we naturally become more effective servants. Yeah? Cool. Um, the, the second session was really about how um, growing in the gift of seeing in the Spirit is very much about letting the Lord transform the way that we think, let him, let, let helping, uh, rather allowing him to, to transform our perspective, to change the way that we think, to, to give us new perspectives, to, to transform our mind. Um, and that sounds like a good idea, yeah? That when we learn more about who he is, we're capable of seeing more of who he is. So then the next session during Saturday, we had a lot of practical activation. We had people practice seeing the Spirit. How many of you were part of that? Awesome. Good job. Good job being bold and practicing, unless you snuck out into the hallway during that part. I forgive you. Um, I've actually, I've had that happen before where people sneak out in the hallway during activations. And like, you know, sometimes since everyone's talking or doing an activation, I'll use that opportunity to go to the bathroom. And I walk out there and people look like they've just been caught. They're like, <gasps> I'm like, I'm just going to the bathroom. It's okay. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit convicting you that you're feeling. <laughs> um, and so we did that, which was super fun. And then later that evening, we talked about spiritual warfare. Um, and then this, this morning, we talked um, a bit. For, for How many of you were here this, this morning at all? Cool. Just a couple of you. Um, we, we, we talked a lot about... How, how honor is kind of the, the, what I like to call it is that honor, honor is the, the vessel that revival is held in, that, that God's purposes and plans are held in, that when we learn to honor, it not only equips us to, to protect, guard, and grow the, the, um, the, the purposes and plans of God, it also is one of the most important tools in unlocking our ability to see into the spirit, to see what God is doing, because we, what the core of seeing in the spirit is, is seeing people and seeing circumstances the way that God sees them. And another thing I talked about this morning is that that honor is the, in my opinion, is the practical application of love. It is the way that we make love actually happen between one another. Does that make sense? Cool. So now that some of you who weren't there have a very, very, very brief overview, um, I'd like to go somewhere a little bit specific tonight. So if you would, open your Bibles to one of my, one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, the book of Jonah. People always make some kind of sounds when I say that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so if they had a monocle, it'd pop out and they'd say, interesting selection. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's non-traditional. Hmm. <laughs> the book of Jonah. I love this book for lots of reasons. Uh, one reason, it's super short. That's really helpful. Just four chapters. Boom, boom, boom. You can read it in, in like 20 minutes. Real easy. Nice and short. Um, also, before I got um, talked into by the Holy Spirit to, to uh, going to a ministry school, I was, I was studying to be an English teacher. And so I really love uh, looking at the Bible from a literary perspective, especially the Old Testament, just because uh, Hebrew thinkers are very literary in their thinking. They liked metaphor, they liked allegory, they liked wordplay and things like that, and that's a lot of fun. And Jonah is a wonderful, beautiful, fantastic, and succinct microcosm of something that I believe that God wants to do with the church as a whole. Would you like to dive in that with me? Cool. 
Now, just before we dive into this, um, most of us have probably heard the story of Jonah, yeah? Even non-Christian, even people who didn't grow up in a Christian uh, background oftentimes have heard the story of Jonah. Big, big fish or whale ate him at some point, and there was a prophecy, and, you know, and, and now a lot of times, uh, especially when I was a kid, I would hear this story taught from the perspective of this is a story about obedience. This is a story about doing what God said to do. How many of you have heard this story taught from that perspective? Yeah, and I wouldn't say that's not true, um, but I do think that maybe it is missing a little bit of the point. So let's just kind of breeze through this a little bit. We have uh, Jonah chapter 1. So this is our introduction. This is our starting place. This is the first thing we see. The, the, the credits have gone by. You've seen the title, Jonah. Do, do, do. Credits fade up. Uh, fade down, rather, and we come up on the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So, introduction. This guy gets a word from the Lord. He has to go and cry against the, the evil that's happening in Nineveh. Again, I've heard different people teach this differently. They say that Nineveh was like the Las Vegas of the time or the New York of the time, whatever city the pastor dislikes. Um, you know, <laughs> it, is the, it is the bad city. Um, it's used multiple times in scriptures as an example of a city, of a sin city, of a city that's full of, that where all the bad things happen, where they do all, all the bad things. Um, again, uses this in Proverbs, uses this in uh, Psalms, just as a kind of a metaphorical reference point for this idea. Um, and I like here because, you know, some of you Bible scholars know this story by heart, but we don't know why Jonah's running away at this point. We haven't been told that yet. We just know he gets this word and he makes a run from it. I've had people teach me this uh, scripture, and maybe I just misunderstood when I was a little kid, but I was always under the impression that Jonah was, like, scared that the Ninevites were going to kill him or something like that. Like, they're so wicked that if he went there and tried to correct them, that he would just be rejected and killed. That's just kind of how I saw it. Maybe I misunderstood it, but that's what I saw. Um, we can breeze through this part. You know, he gets on the boat, the big storm comes, and it's the, even all the sailors are like, oh, this is looking bad, you know. Uh, surely, this is so bad, in fact, that maybe one of us did something wrong. And we find out, Jonah finally, you know, says, hey, I, I might have, like, been specifically told by God to do something and then specifically ran in the opposite direction. Um, you know, it's probably me. Now, it's kind of like the story because the, uh, Jonah says, like, hey, you got to get rid of me. And they're like, we, we don't want to do that. We don't want innocent blood on our hands. Let's just try to fix this. And so they try, it talks about them trying to struggle to row to get to the side. They're unsuccessful. They can't row to shore. And finally, they're like, all right, I guess we're throwing you in now. We tried. Um, and they throw him overboard. The sea calms. And it says that the Lord appointed a fish, to, a great fish to come and uh, eat Jonah. So he's sitting there inside this fish. He's got some time to think. He's got to time, some time to write in a very long, chapter-long prayer, which is right after this, and basically saying, you know, oh God, please forgive me, deliver me, you're my deliverer. And he gets spit up right in front of Nineveh. And once again, God says, go to Nineveh. 
Again, I encourage you to read this story afterwards to get all the details here. I just want to kind of focus on a few certain parts. Um, so it says here that Nineveh was a really great city. In fact, it was so great, it was so big, that it took three days to walk across it. It was this really big city, and uh, here we have Jonah's just been spit up by the, by the fish. And let me see here. We're in chapter 3, and let's look at um, yeah, verse... Four. So, um, so Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, "Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown." Now, I, again, I don't—they they don't go into all the details here. They say it's a three-day walk. The only information that we have is that he walked in one day, said the shortest prophecy ever: <laughs> 40 days, and then it'll be overthrown." Bye. It's gone. The impression that I get, he was not working very hard to make this happen. He walked in one day into a three-day journey, said this, and that was that. Um, he may have said it more. He may have walked through the whole city and said it, but they're not really specific about this. Now, I love what happens next. And the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Even the king put out an order. And i got to find this one spot here. It's great. Where is it? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. But both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth. Even the cows had sackcloth on them. Uh, apparently, they were sinful cows. I don't know. <laughs> Poor cows. <just> <laughs> Cow, you're in mourning. Be sad, please. So they all repent. They all repent. They all decide we are going to turn from our wickedness. This, this... <laughs> Very, very uh, half-done prophetic word is totally changing my mind. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, this is where our story starts to come together a little bit. This is where we get the twist in the third act, if you will, of we find out why Jonah ran away. Because up until now, if you didn't already know this story, we don't really know what's going on. Now, as a kid, for whatever reason, whenever they would teach this uh, story in uh, Sunday school, they would kind of skip chapter 4. I realize maybe why now, because it's a little bit depressing for those of you who know it. doesn't end necessarily happily for Jonah. Um, they would just kind of get to, and then the city was saved, Yay, the end. Obey God and good things will happen. How many of you, when you were younger, got this story taught to you that way? Raise a hand. It kind of ended at that part, and they just let it go. Which is a bit of a bummer, because this, to me, is the chapter that kind of brings it all together in one really neat and very beautiful package. Um, so, they have just been saved. The calamity did not happen. But it greatly displeased Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Okay, they had a secret conversation that we didn't know about, and this is what it was. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Okay, wait a second. He, he didn't want to go because he knew that God was not going to destroy them? That's weird. That's a little mean, even. 
No one told me that Jonah was a jerk. <laughs> I love this next part. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Wah. <laughs> the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a history nerd, so I apologize for those of you who don't enjoy that kind of thing. Well, let's just take a step back and take a look at this question that God just asked Jonah. Do you have a good reason to be angry? So, the city of Nineveh was the capital city of a country called Assyria. Assyria was really the, the first great conquering empire in human history. There were other great civilizations, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, but they were not really the conquering type. They weren't really the, let's go over here and take more land and make it ours. They didn't really do a lot of that. The Assyrians were the first ones that were like, hey, let's go full-on empire and go attack these lands, take the stuff we need from them, and then say, hey, guess what? You're, you're our land now. Now, the Assyrians were pretty famous for a lot of things. They were really good. They were really well-organized. They kept really good records. Records. They also had really strict laws for the territories that they had taken under their uh, care. Um, and if people didn't follow those laws exactly right, making the appropriate donations to the empire, making, uh, following all the laws, you know, not rebelling and things like that, they had a real nasty habit of going out there, murdering every man, woman, and child, and putting their heads on pikes in front of the village. They were super harsh, super brutal, super brutal, notoriously brutal, and they liked that about themselves. They put up, they put up a lot of art about, about how they were super strict and super brutal. Now, we don't know exactly what Jonah's life was like before this, but when you look at how uh, well spread out the Assyrians were and how in other parts of scripture uh, the Israelites really didn't like the Assyrians, you can imagine that it is very likely that Jonah had some direct experience with this kind of oppression, that he probably knew people that had died to the hands of the Assyrians because they were pretty rough. The very, even if he hadn't had his, his home or his family taken from him, he, he probably at the very least had some kind of close relation or someone that he knew well that that had happened to. And this was something that was very regular. Now again, just to clarify this just a little bit more, I imagine that most of these people in this room grew up in the United States. Uh, how many of you grew up in the United States? Um, if you did not do that, awesome, welcome, we love you. Um, an unusual uh, thing that's built into the very fabric of our culture here is that we have a humongous uh, geographical advantage for where we are. And this is something that has been an advantage all the way up to World War II. We are an entire ocean away from any other major world power. We have some uh, foreign countries above us, some foreign countries below us, but they are you know, relatively small compared to our military, or at least they have been for you know, a couple, the 250 years we've been around. Um, and we are an entire ocean away from any other world power. One of the things I find fascinating when I go over to Europe is realizing like how close all these countries are together. Germany to Poland to England, like it's so close. And you hop in these flights and it takes less time to, than it did for me to fly from uh, you know, Atlanta to here. Just a short hop between all these places. They're very, very close. 
And so deep down in the, in the root of our culture here, we don't have the, the understanding of what it feels like for to be this vulnerable to another uh, foreign body. That, that you could be in your village and you could, that probably only had maybe a very small volunteer militia for like bandits and things like that and have organized, structured men with bows and arrows and armor that are miles beyond anything that you have technologically that you could possibly achieve techn technologically and they would roll up with uh, what they were famous for, siege weapons, armor, all this stuff and just roll through and just take whatever they wanted murder whoever they wanted, and leave whenever they wanted. Um, okay, history nerd stuff coming to an end, so if that was hard for you, I'm sorry. Um, but I, I just want you to get into the psych psychology of what it would be like to live your whole life, most likely, with that could happen at any moment. And you had nothing that you could do to, to stop that. And then God says, hey, go to the capital city, of the people who have been oppressing you, your people, and your family for years and tell them to repent. And you know who your God is and you're like, oh shoot, he's trying to save them. Do you have a good reason to be angry? I bet Jonah thought, yeah, I do. <laughs> so, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat, under it and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. I imagine he was sitting like this. <laughs> I want a snapshot of what that shelter looked like, too, a very angrily put-together shelter. <laughs> so, so, I love this part, too. So the Lord God appointed a plant... I love that. He's like, you little plant, you have a destiny. You are going to help me out with Jonah. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. <laughs> Jonah is a five-year-old, in case you haven't <laughs> caught on. <laughs> um, but... God appointed a worm. Worm, you have a destiny. Worm, I have a plan for your life. Worm, you're going to help me out with Jonah. I like that. Makes me happy. Um, appointed a worm. Then dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. Then the sun came up, and God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with his, all his soul to die. <laughs> saying, death is better to me than life. <laughs> then God said to Jonah, and this is a familiar story, but I want you to roll with me on this. Then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to, uh, yeah, Jonah, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Man. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? Those animals put on the sackcloth too. <laughs> God remembered. 
The animals put the sackcloth on too. We can't forget the animals. I love this story so much because it ends right here. Now, how many of you have seen a movie or a TV show that ends with with what we call an open ending or or an obscure ending? Um, I know some of you, how many of you find that super annoying? But yes, I understand. I understand. We like closure. It's a a thing. Um, When an artist, generally speaking, does that, what they are trying to do is to, generally, this is very broad speaking, but generally what they're trying to say is that it's not about the conclusion, it's not about what happens in the story next, it's about the question that the story asks. A lot of times when an artist creates a story that has an open ending, it's because it's more about the question that the story asks, and because of that they withhold the answer. I love this story so much because it's this tight, little, simple, well, well-constructed story about the nature of our God. Our God who has a, sees a city that is full of wickedness, that does what we would even to this day consider really horrible things. They were known for sexual depravity. They were known for, for material excess. They were known for all kinds of pagan gods and religions. And also, they were super bad imperial murderer people. It's a scientific term. <laughs> um, and God sends one of his sons to go save that city. I love this so much because God has a compassion on a city like that. And this entire story from beginning to end, God has compassion on his rebellious, baby-like son, Jonah. He is discipling. This is a picture of our father discipling a city and discipling one of his sons. I talked about this briefly this morning, but one of my favorite uh, One of the greatest parts of scripture, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. There's this beautiful moment on there where Jesus, it feels like he's heightening the the heaviness of the rules, like he's making it harder. And he says a couple things like, hey, you've heard it said that you shall shall not murder, but I'm telling you that even if you have hate for your heart in someone, it's as if you've you've killed them. And then he says, you know, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I'm telling you that even if you think of a woman inappropriately, that that it is as if you had committed adultery in your heart. Oh man, is he making the rules harsher? Is he making it way harder? Is he is he making is he making it more difficult? No. He's pointing out what his intention was for the very beginning. It's not about you just doing what he says. It's about you transforming from the inside out. Obedience is great, but Jonah is not a book about obedience. Because Jonah obeyed, but he was not transformed. And the Lord discipled him through. Jonah, I I get it. (laughs) But there are people in there who don't know their right hand from their left. And I know that the implications are there once you understand the historical context. I know that they hurt you. I know that they're wicked. That's why I sent you there. But you got to understand, they don't know their right hand from their left. They do not know what they're doing. And I know that them not knowing what they were doing hurts you a whole lot. But this is who I am. 
And this is who I am to you, and this is who I am to them. You know, I, I'm just going to touch on this, this briefly because it, um, it goes a lot. But you got to understand that the powerful implications of what God was doing. The, the Assyrian Empire was the model that was copied for imperialism from that point all the way to the British Empire. The British Empire, up until relatively recently, used the same kind of strategies, the same kind of tactics to procure uh, other countries. This is a trend that, that, went, that ended around the time of Teddy Roosevelt, so like not that long ago. It was just wrapping up around that time. And God, in his wisdom, saw a, a, a historical construct that was going to be set, a historical precedent that was going to be launched into the ages. Uh, and there's more than, than that. Like Assyria is, is really the foundation of where modern literature started. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which is one of the first novels that ever existed, was, was recorded and stored there. They, they were the first people to restore uh, literature and writings and, and records and things like that, a model that was copied for years afterwards, God saw this, this, the root system that was being set and, and the trends that were going to come out, the, the, the way that this one nation would affect the history of the world. And God sent a son to step into that city and release his glory into it because that's the kind of God that we have. And when you look at the history of the scripture, that is what our Father has been doing since the beginning. Go back earlier to, to, the, to the great civilization of Egypt. They weren't as much of a conqueror, but they definitely set a lot of trends. What happens? God sends a son named Joseph at the exact right moment with the exact right anointing to fall into favor with the Pharaoh to interpret some dreams and become one of the most influential people on the planet. At that time, God sent a son to change a city, a civilization. Again, years later, the, the empire of Assyria starts rising up. God sends a son. Not too much long, you know, I, I get into all kinds of things. Jonah, Jonah dragged his feet a, a whole bunch with this. And it, it is true historically that around this period, um, uh, Assyria was almost conquered, but they made it through. But just a little bit longer after that, about 100 years, they were conquered by uh, an empire you might be familiar with, the, uh, the Babylonians. Another empire where God sent a son named Daniel to go find favor to transform history. And this is a beautiful kind of point of comparison looking at Jonah and looking at Daniel. Because Daniel, a man who was kidnapped out of his home... The Babylonians kind of learned from the Assyrians how to do this. And the Assyrians did the same thing where they'd kidnap people, take them over to this area and say, this is where you live now, to help disassociate them from their kind of family roots and get them to think, no, we're Assyrians. We're in the Assyrian Empire now. Babylonians copied that part. They were a lot less harsh and a lot less murdery, which was nice. Um, you know, they still had the fiery furnaces and things, but comparatively speaking, um, <laughs> less whole villages and things. Uh, but... Um, God sent a son who had the same kind of reasons to be upset, who had been kidnapped from his home and taken into, into, into slavery, essentially. And yet this man caught the heart of God so that when a negative dream, a negative prophetic word, if you, 
Again, going, going to this story, when, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about his own destruction, Daniel, as he was interpreting the, interpreting the dream, started his statement by saying, Oh, my king, I wish that this was for your enemies. When a word of destruction came to this king, he said, I wish this was for your enemies. I don't want this punishment to come on you. He had learned the heart of God and wanted good things for this wicked pagan king who had kidnapped him and was allowing him to influence him but wasn't really following God at that, at that point. I'm going to touch on this. I'm going to connect, tell you how this connects back to singing the Spirit in case you uh, are still looking at that sign up there. Um, it is so important that we see what God is doing. And it's so important that we are transformed by what we see. Obedience is not enough. Just doing what you are supposed to do is not enough. And it's not enough in the you need to work harder way. It's you have to be transformed. You have to be transformed. And you cannot do that. You can only let him do that. I'm just going to touch on this because it's not the center of what we're talking about, but I want to move on. You know, God meant it when he challenged us to love our enemies. poke this beehive and make it run for it, but <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people that we can consider our enemies right now. Most of us don't really uh, sit and wait for people to come and, you know, burn down our village or anything like that, although we can kind of feel that way on Facebook. <laughs> all, those, all those Assyrians coming to <laughs> get us some a joke, but it's, but, but it's kind of not. I'm going to just throw this challenge out there. We're going to move on to the next thing, but if there is any person, group of people, or, or organization that you would enjoy to see bad things happen to, I'd like to propose that you might not be loving your enemy. This is complicated because some of those individuals, organizations, or peoples are not godly, are, 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 are pushing against things that I hold dear. <laughs> but the Assyrians were murdering Jonah's people. God has made his standard for love very clear. <laughs> he didn't say, go tell the Assyrians that they're doing fine, keep it up. <laughs> he said, hey, God, God... God needs you to change. This needs to be different. So it's not just go do whatever you want. It's not, you know, cre create distance and say, hey, you're fine over there. But we have to check our hearts because if we are saying all the right things and sh saying all the right love things, but we're not transformed, not only will we probably end up with a a worm that has been appointed to eat our plant. <laughs> but I want to plug you into the reality that we might miss our opportunity to influence the course of history. 
There's no way Jonah could have known that this was going to set a precedent that lasted literally thousands of years. But God did, and God sent him to go to the very heart of that and tip the scales. And I am willing to bet that some of the ways that God has called you to tip the scales involves you causing good things to happen to your enemies. So, let's move on to one more thing. Uh, a lighter topic, maybe. <laughs> um, I want to I connect this more just to this idea of, of this is something that God has done from the very beginning. He's sent sons to, to transform cities. <laughs> when I say the word sons, I say it the same way I say the bride of Christ. I, I mean everybody. Everybody who is a son or daughter of God, just, just to be clear. Men, you're the bride of Christ. Women, you're sons of God. Welcome. <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> so I, I had this uh, vision uh, not too long ago, and this you know, I, I, I was talking about this on the, on the car ride over. One thing that I really like, I know that not, not all of you have kind of heard uh, all, of, all of my stories or been with me this, this whole time, but um, one of the things I really love is, is sharing about things that are happening in the spirit and trying to uh, uh, show how they're really um, grounded and kind of rooted in, in what a normal experience is. And, and this, this one, this story was something that was a little bit, a little bit more out there, at least for me. Uh, I realize that might sound terrifying to some of you, but, um, and by that I mean more, the, the imagery that God used to kind of show me this was, was a little bit uh, unusual, but, um, but I believe it is deeply connected to something that he has been doing since the beginning of time, which is sending sons to save cities. <laughs> Um, so I was in the, I was in my front uh, driveway playing with my kids. Um, they were riding bikes up and down our driveway, and I was just, you know, throwing a ball around with one of them and um, just hanging out, having a good time, you know. And uh, all of a sudden, I uh, turned around and looked at the end of my driveway, and I saw Jesus standing there. Um, now, uh, for those of you who have read my book or heard me uh, speak a little bit earlier, I I've seen Jesus a handful of times before. And every time I've seen him, he's looked more or less like a person. Um, but this time when I saw him, he looked uh, a way that I'd never seen him b before. Um, he, he was uh, covered in richly colored robes. He was wearing jewels from, from top to bottom. And his face was shining so brightly that I couldn't look at it. It was like looking into the sun. And I thought, why are you in my driveway? And as my eyes kind of slowly adjusted to the brightness of his face, I saw behind him that there were these racks and racks and racks of shelves. They were these really big, or what I thought were shelves anyway. They were really big. They went up so high that they blocked out part of the sky where I couldn't, I couldn't see up very, I, I, couldn't, I could, actually couldn't see the sun unless I stepped to the side to see through them. And I looked to the left, and they went as far as I could see to the left. I looked to the right, and they went as far as I could see to the right. 
And I looked closer at these shelves, and I realized that there were two different kinds. There were kinds that were just kind of boring, slate gray, looked like filing cabinet shelves, you know, just kind of steel handle, you know, white um, office standard gray uh, shelves that were about like, you know, this by this. And the others were really beautiful. They were, they were marble, and they were, had brass and gold fittings. They were really ornate. They had flowers stu stuck into them. It almost, when I, as I looked at it, I, it almost looked like a mausoleum, you know, if you've ever seen one of those before. And as I stood there, I said, what, what is this? And I heard Jesus say, it's a graveyard. I said, why is this in my driveway? And he said, oh, this, this graveyard covers the entire earth. I looked behind me, and I could see shelves going back as far as I could go. And look this direction and this direction. I could see them going as far as I could go. And he said, it's a graveyard of dreams. When I saw how many they were and how big it was and how many hundreds of thousands of drawers were just in this area, I thought, I live in a small suburb south of Atlanta, like... How many people's dreams could there possibly be here? And suddenly a question popped in my head. Whose dreams are these? And Jesus smiled and he said, these are my dreams. And he said, there is no place on this earth that I have not dreamt about, that I have not planned for that I have not hoped for, and that I have not accounted for. And I looked again, and I looked at these differences between these drawers, these kind of uh, gray slate drawers and these beautiful ones. And even though the beautiful ones kind of reminded me of a, ma of a mausoleum, they, they had this like alive feeling to them. And for some reason, these, these flat gray ones had kind of this dead feeling to them. I don't, I don't know, I couldn't put my finger on it. As I was looking at that and thinking about it, I heard him say, not all of my dreams come true. And I realized that, that the, the dreams that were represented by the gray drawers were, were dreams that their, their time had lapsed, their time had come and gone. He said, do you want to see it? And I said, yes. And so we walked up to one of the, the dead-looking ones boring gray ones, and he opened it up, and it opened really far, it was like t 10 feet that it opened, and it was full back to front with paper after paper after paper after paper, and I, I'm, it's tricky to have the right language for this, but the best way I can describe it is it was, it was like the most detailed, most meticulous, most, most um, complete business plan you had ever seen in your entire life. Every, for, for this particular plan, for this work that he wanted to do, he had every detail, every, every individual, every situation, every circumstance accounted for, planned for, set for, budgeted for, everything. He had everything figured out, every single little teeny tiny detail from the biggest to the smallest. He knew how to make this thing happen. And he closed that drawer. And he walked over to one of the alive-looking ones, the, the, the marble ones. 
And he opened it up part way, and I was shocked to see a pair of feet sitting there. And I leaned and looked down, and I saw there was a whole person laying in there. It was like a, like in the cop shows where like the morgue drawer thing. <laughs> he said, all of my dreams come true through my children. And I realized that the dead drawers were dreams that no one had decided to commit themselves to. And that the gilded ones, the beautiful ones, were ones that people had, had given their lives to, had chosen to follow. And as I realized this and I looked around, I realized that there, there was a lot more gray drawers than there were uh, marble and, and gold ones. And I felt this anger rise up in me, just spiked right right in me. And I just, just shot up in me, and I just, uh, without even thinking, this just burst out of my mouth. And I looked at him, and I said, then why do you even dream at all? He looked at me, and he said, I, I never stop hoping and believing in my children. No matter how many times that hope is deferred. So there was a pause for a little while. Um, and he said, do you want to see your drawer? I said, yes. <laughs> and he grabbed the side of the, this drawer and he pulled it and the whole th mechanism slid like it was all on rollers or something like that. And he pulled it over to a section where there was a whole bunch of open drawers. They were, the, they were that gray color, but they were all open. And I immediately realized that these open drawers were the drawers where the dream had not, the time for the dream had not yet lapsed, but no one had yet committed to it either. <clears throat> and he grabbed onto one drawer, and I knew that it was mine. He opened it up. I, it, it was like padded on the inside, like a coffin. This is weird. I warned you. <clears throat> and you know, the, the, these drawers are about the size of a file cabinet, and so I'm looking into this, and you know, I'm, I'm a little bit wild, wider than most file cabinets. Um, and then half, half jokingly, I said, looks, looks a little small. <laughs> And he said, oh, yeah, there's no room for your dreams in there. There's only room for mine. He paused for probably longer than he needed to. And he said, don't worry, I'll hold your dreams for you. And I realized in that moment that that was neither a, a promise that I would not get those dreams, nor a guarantee that he was going to slip those dreams in there if I got in. It was just an invitation to trust him. <clears throat> and so, obviously, <laughs> I, knowing because it was the right thing to do, I stepped in.
Now, this whole time before this, I'm, I'm seeing in the Spirit. And so when I see in the Spirit, um, it, uh, the stuff that I see looks like it's made out of different stuff. Like, I see it with my physical eyes, but it, it looks like it's made out of different stuff than physical stuff. So I can tell the difference, and I can kind of focus on one thing or the other. So I'm seeing my driveway. I'm seeing my kids going around um, and all that. But as soon as I stepped in the, to the drawer, something happened to me that had only happened a very small handful of times before. I had a full open vision, and that's where what God was showing me completely overrided my vision. All I could see was what he was showing me. I could feel the ground underneath my feet. I could hear the sound of my kids' bicycles rolling on the cement. I assumed he was taking care of that because I did not have a choice in the matter at this, at this stage. And what I saw was myself way up high in the sky. I was, I was about airplane height. And I looked down, and there was a city below me. I looked over in different directions. There were just mountains and valleys and hills. I looked to my left and right, and I saw people in a row as far as I could, they could go this way, and people in a row as far as they could go that way. And I felt his presence behind me, and I looked back, and I saw Jesus back there, the same way that I had seen him before, shining brightly. And as I looked at him, the, the light that was covering his head spread down so it covered his entire body and he got brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And I saw these beams of light come out from him. Like in, in individual beams, like a laser beam kind of. And they hit each person. As they hit each person, they split apart like they would through a, through a um, oh, what's the term? Prism, thank you. Good job. I like they went through a prism. Now, a prism, if you just put white light through it, bends and you get kind of a rainbow effect. And this was completely different. At first, it split the light out of the person and it was like the colors of the rainbow. But then it continued splitting after that. And it split into patterns and shapes. For, from some people, it came out and it was these... these um, architectural, mathematical, fractal kind of repeating patterns that were very technical, but beautiful, gorgeous in their technicality. Out of some people, they came out more organic, where they were like swirling and beautiful and painterly and all that, and a different pattern came out of each person. And I was just looking at how pretty everything was and thinking, oh, that looks awesome. And I just heard this whisper like it was right behind me. Look and see what it does. And I looked ahead, and I watched as this light cascaded out and went to every city, to every person, in every direction, all across the world. I watched as this light landed on every single aspect of society. I watched as this light went into businesses, and I saw for the first time what God's manifest presence, what his manifest glory looked like in the boardroom of a Fortune 500 company. And it was amazing because it was not just people getting slain in the spirit and falling down. It was more than that. It was them creating plans, creating businesses, creating ideas, uh, directing money according to his kingdom, according to his plan, according to his purposes. I watched his presence soar into an auto part shop. 
And I watched his glory manifest, and it was not just people falling down and worshiping or dancing and singing or reading the Bible. But I saw people begin to care for other people's vehicles as if it were ministry unto the Lord. <laughs> and love and release love on every single person that came in and kindness. And every single employee, every single young man and young woman that came in was treated as a disciple, as a son, as a daughter. Deeply and powerfully loved. I watched them go from every aspect of industry, from the biggest to the smallest and everyone in between, and watched it reveal the kind of what God's manifest glory looked like in that place. I watched it go through the entertainment industry, transforming the way that we, we release prophetic utterances, the way that we release uh, entertainment, the way that we release stories. I watched as sons and daughters were empowered to share stories that explicitly represented the gospel, but also stories that implicitly represented Jesus. So that when people, so that that would build people up in such a way, so that when they heard his name, they would recognize him for who he was. I watched the gospel reach people who would never, ever receive it any other way. I looked over to the side and I saw piles and piles of hurting and broken people. I saw abandoned children. I saw drug addicts dying in the street. I saw people stuck in cycles of poverty, of, of, of sex trafficking, of crime, and every single, and I heard and felt every single cry of pain and sorrow. And I felt the compassion of the Lord surge so powerfully as he sent sons and daughters to be the answer to the prayers of the lost, bringing food, adopting children, teaching people how to go home again. And it went on and on and on and on and on and on and on for what felt like hours. And somewhere in there, I blinked, and I was back in my driveway. And Jesus was standing right in front of me. I said, is this something that is going to happen? Is this something that could happen? He said, it's already started. And then he was gone. And I looked at my watch and it had been less than a minute. which my wife was happy about when she heard. <laughs> I know that imagery is a little bit poetic and artistic and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was a lot for me, honestly. And it's the funniest thing slash the most deeply frustrating thing that, that while I was seeing all that stuff, I was genuinely, the, the thing that stunned me the most was how practical, applicable, and just obvious all of it seemed. I felt as I was singing it that I could just jot down every single little thing, every single little piece of instruction, every single little part of what was done and just say, hey, just do this. 
and you'll watch God's glory manifest in whatever business you have. And the second it was gone, every single bit of that part of it was out of my mind. I could only feel God's intent. A couple days later, I was really annoyed about that. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> that would have been a great book. <laughs> and the Lord said, I have assigned you to shine in certain places. And I have assigned others to shine in other places. I was reminded of another scripture. A scripture that, that we just kind of read as a nice thing. We sing a cute little song about it, in fact. But, but one that I think has some of the most uh, powerful ramifications of almost, of almost any assignment we find in the Bible. So when Jesus said, looking at his disciples, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. A light that brings, a, a candle that brings light to the whole house. He says, do we, do we, do we take a light like that and put a, put a basket over it? No, I'm going to let it shine. <laughs> he says, no, we put it up on a pedestal so that it can bring light to the whole house. Part of the gift of seeing in the spirit is getting to see angels and see demons and see moves of God. The, the root of seeing in the spirit is seeing God's purposes and plans unfolding upon the earth and being his sons and daughters, his ambassadors from the kingdom of heaven who have been sent to enact those purposes on this planet. To release his kingdom in ways that have only been imagined up until now, to release his presence in ways that's only been imagined up until now. I'll tell you one more story. This is a much more lighthearted and funny one so that we can ease some of the attention that's in the room right now. <laughs> um, I was a missionary kid. I was a, church, I was a pastor's kid growing up, and... Uh, we lived in uh, Moscow in the early 90s, um, just immediately post-communist uh, Mo Moscow. Um, very exciting. Lots of machine guns. Anyway, um, <laughs> learned how to hide in the car. Anyway, um, so my, my uh, uh, Russian television in the early 90s was not very exciting for uh, small children. And so my grandfather, being the, the extremely sweet and extremely kind and extremely loving man that, that he was, uh, would use his VCR to tape like the Disney Channel and children's channels and, and mail them to me and my sisters in, uh, in Russia. Super sweet. And so all the time we'd watch these tapes and we'd watch them over and over and over again. We had all the commercials memorized and everything. And my favorite show was a uh, show that might be familiar to people who are approximately my age. Um, uh, was this one called the, the Muppet Babies. Um, yeah, it was good. Some of, some of the older generation remember the Muppets, yes. This is like a little kid version of it for kind of toddlers, and that was perfect for my age at the time. 
Um, and I really just liked this show, you know. They would uh, they'd have all these fun things. They, they, they were all in the same nursery together, and every, every episode they'd, like, imagine, like, going on a space adventure or, like, being, like, an Indiana Jones knockoff, going to get, like, you know, uh, treasure or something like that, and being a knight fighting a dragon. I just thought it was really fun. It just made me really happy. I liked this show a lot. I'd be super excited any time it came on. And so this one Saturday uh, morning, gosh, I must have been six years old, um, as I was watching the uh, Muppet Babies one day, I, I discovered a fundamental problem with Christianity. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> but give me a second. Um, we were sitting there in my pajamas, eating my cereal, watching the Muppet Babies, and I was sitting there feeling how much I enjoyed this show, when suddenly this thought occurred to me. I thought... Um, hmm, I, you know, we're, we're, we're missionaries here, so kind of our job is to make sure that the world gets saved, right? That's, that's our job. And so I thought, uh, you know, I, well, I wonder what the Muppet Babies would be about if all the people who made it were Christians. And I ran that through my little head a couple times, and, and I thought... All I could picture over and over again was Kermit the Frog reading the Bible while Miss Piggy played a worship song. <laughs> Which, in retrospect, that would be kind of funny. Um, but I, as I ran this through my head over and over and over again, a feeling of deep sorrow came over me. Because I realized that every single version that I could imagine was terribly boring. It was not nearly as exciting as what the show was. And I didn't know what to do about that. I thought, oh no, like, what, what, what do I do? How, did, how is this going to work? And I kept running it through my mind. I couldn't think of a way to make the Muppet Babies a Christian show and it not be lame. <laughs> and so as this just whirled around in my mind, I finally, without really coming to a great conclusion, thought, well... Maybe I could just secretly hope that the people who make the Muppet Babies get saved last. And that way the Muppet Babies could be good for as long as possible. You know, this is my six-year-old crisis of conscience. <laughs> um, and so that, that happened. I just kind of stewarded that in my little heart. Um, I flash forward to me in uh, junior high, maybe early high school. I had that memory come up again, just kind of popped up in my head one day, and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when I got super freaked out uh, about the Muppet Babies being bad. That show's canceled now, so, and the world's not saved yet, so dodge that bullet. Um, <laughs> but I just, I just kind of had that thought in my head again of that. And, you know, I'd, I'd grown up in the Lord a lot more, and I'd realized, like, oh, there's a lot more to, like, God than just reading the Bible and playing worship songs, you know. And just was thinking how about how funny I was. But then I just kind of ran that thought through my head again of, okay, well, what would a Christian version of the Muppet Babies be, and what would it be about? And I ran it through my head again and again and again and again, and I still couldn't think of a version of it that would be a Christian show that would be better than the version that already existed. Now that I was older, this actually bothered me a little bit more, because I was like, God, you created the universe, all of art 
aspires to describe things that you invented. Why would Christian art be worse than the art of people who don't know God? But no matter how much I thought, I couldn't think of a different version. And all of a sudden, this thought spread through my mind (laughs) that I just don't know what God's glory looks like in a Saturday morning cartoon show. And even though that's kind of a funny thought, I realized in that moment that even though I didn't know, God probably did. (laughs) And as I had that thought, I thought... Are there other places that I have no idea what God's glory looks like? I knew a little bit about what God's glory looked like in a church. I'd seen that some. We'd experienced some cool breakthrough on, on my campus, so I knew a little bit about what God's glory looked like on a school campus. But all of a sudden, I thought about a Fortune 500 company boardroom. I realized that at that time, I had no idea what God's glory looked like there. I thought about an auto parts shop. <laughs> I realized I had no idea what God's glory looked like there. And all these different things popped through my head, one after the one, unbidden, over and over and over. And I realized there were so many places on this earth that I had no idea what his glory looked like. But I realized that he probably did. And it wasn't until much later, when I found a graveyard of dreams in my driveway, not a sentence I thought I'd ever say. <laughs> that he has a plan for every single corner of this planet, every single level of society, every single demographic, every single group, over every moment of history. And as I started looking back in his history, I realized that he's had a plan the whole time. And that since the beginning, he's been sending sons the very center of where those things have been rooted. (laughs) And he sent them there to release his glory at the very root of aspects of history that would grow throughout all of time. What I want to suggest today, and more accurately tonight, (laughs) is that there is a place that you are called that only you can go. We serve an infinite God. If every human being on this earth achieved the fullness of their potential, the full expression of their ability to to reveal God's glory on earth, we would not, over the course of the entirety of human history, have the full picture of who God is because he's that big. That means that there is an aspect of his glory that can only be expressed through you. I know that might seem lofty. I I know that might seem big, but that is how big our God is. (laughs) There is a facet of his nature that 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 is intentionally designed only to be expressed through you. A specific lifetime expression. Not a small thing, a a lifetime of expression. (laughs) The enemy has tried to steal those things a hundred thousand different ways by by trying to attack our identity, by trying to say the dreams that we have are too big or too small. 
I just want to start an auto part shop. Oh, how's that going to save the world? How's that going to affect anything? God has an idea. I just really like making food for people. How significant is that? God has an idea. And if one piece of God's nature is, is missing, is not expressed through us, that is a loss for history. So there is nothing that is too small. There is nothing that is too big. Because if any piece of his glory is missing, that is a tragedy for all of human history. I don't have time to do it right now, but like I said, I'm a history nerd. There's, there's several points in history. I'm just going to tell you one because I just can't help myself. Genghis Khan's son, who, who had the, one of the biggest, broadest empires in all of human history, um, I believe in terms of land, it was the largest. Well, the area that would turn into China. Genghis Khan's son, as he kind of continued to conquer the way that his, his father had, started running into these people called Christians as he started moving a little bit more to the West. He noticed that these, and he was, in, you know, he was not a great guy, he was enslaving these people, all that kind of thing. But he noticed that these Christian slaves really kind of worked real hard and did real well and were like a little bit like more excellent than the rest of these people. And he said, hey, what about, what's that religion you're always doing? I said, no, we're, we're Christians. Yeah, who's, who's the boss of the Christians? And at that time, that'd be the Pope. I said, okay, yeah, okay, I'm going to send a message to the Pope. I want to hear about this Christianity thing because you guys are interesting. You can read the letter that the Pope wrote back where he was a real big jerk to, to Genghis, Khan, uh, Genghis Khan's son and used really lofty, very uh, Christianese language for the time to make, show a really complex version of the gospel and just told him he needed to stop doing all the sinning that he was doing. And you can read the accounts of how when Genghis Khan's son read that, he was like, this, this is confusing, this is weird, and you guys mean, forget it. What kind of, how would history look <laughs> different? The entire of Genghis Khan's empire, the whole area that became most, most of Asia, <laughs> been saved that day. It's incalculable, an incalculable change in human history. Swing and a miss. And I don't, I don't want to put false pressure on you. But I want you to recognize how much trust God has put in you. How much hope God has put in you. There's grace. He loves you. He loves you whether, whether you decide to sit on the couch for the rest of your life or not. It's not about that. But, but just because he would still love you doesn't mean that's what his highest hope is for you. Does that make sense? So I'm going to pray for you guys real quick. So if you don't mind, stand in for a second.
got the speakers right here so you can stand on them like a rock star. That's fun. <laughs> I'm tempted, but I'm worried they're going to fall somehow. <laughs> the, the only way to do this is to hear what God is saying, is to hear who God says we are is to receive our, our significance from him. But without all that stuff, it's too easy to think too little of ourselves and go for something lower, to think too highly for ourselves, or, or let our value system be based on our culture rather than what he's saying, and think that I'm only important if I'm the CEO of the company. Yet he's calling you to be the best accountant in that entire company. One thing I love about seeing in the spirit is that the angels are really good at this. The, the, the angel that's been appointed authority over a city does not feel more important or less important than the angel that's been assigned to a children's daycare. Both would be disappointed to be in the other's place. Why? Because they are where God called them to be. They are where God designed them to be. And, and for us, this is, this is a complicated uh, needle to thread. <laughs> because it's easy to undershoot and be like, oh, I'm just happy here. And it's easy to overshoot and say, I got to be the most important. I got to change the whole world. If every, if every breath that I take isn't, isn't releasing the world-changing truth, then I'm missing out. You just have to let him lead you. You just have to let him identify that he's already put this in you. That, he's, that he has made his purposes for you, the love of your life, the joy of your life. That's why he can make all those promises in Scripture about joy everlasting. It's not just this magical feeling. It's not, I know this is a little bit crude, but it's not just Jesus drugs that make you feel good. It's, it's he gave you meaningful things to do that you like to do on this planet. He gave you meaningful things to do that you like to do, work that satisfies you. That may be hard work, but you walk away at the end feeling energized and excited because you did what you love to do. You do what you, do, you were designed to do. That's different for all of us, and we need to hear the voice of God. We, we, we can hear the voice of prophetic people. We can hear the voice of our pastors, our evangelists, our, our, our apostles. We need those voices. We, we need them. But we need to hear from God for ourselves. We need to hear what he is saying about us. If we don't, it's too easy to get lost. It's too easy to, 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 to aim high, aim low. It is too easy to say, well, it's too late, or I'm too old, or I'm too young, or, or any of those excuses. It just simply aren't true because he's just better than that. First, I'm going to pray for an impartation, then we're just going to do, do one more thing. Um, just put your hands out in front of you, if you would. Um, first, God, right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, I just released an, an, an impartation of the gift of seeing in the Spirit. I release the truth that, 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 that we'll start seeing angels with our physical eyes. I release encounters with your presence. And I release the truth that every single thing that we see will draw us into a deeper and more personal relationship with you.
But more than that, God, I release these people to see the path that you've laid before them, to see the way that you've prepared them, to see the seeds of your plans that you have planted in them, to see the passions that you have put in them that will lead them to what you have called them to be. I just wipe away a, a cultural perspective of significance and release a kingdom perspective of significance that we will see our value as coming from our king, not as coming from our culture. For those of us who have experienced wounding in this area, for those of us who, who have experienced disappointment in these areas of passion, I release healing to those areas right now. That we will be healed. You, that we would hear your voice. If some of us are Jonah's, where we have been so hurt, that we are completely ready to fully reject our call in life. We just give you permission to, just as you did with Jonah, disciple us. Speak to us. To show us how we need to transform, to lead us into transformation so that we can see your purposes and your plans for our lives and the lives of those around us. Teach us, God, how to be people who genuinely and truly love our enemies, who when a bad word, a negative word comes to them, we can say, I wish this was for someone else. That we would truly fall in love with our enemies. Not in just that way that we're supposed to, but because we've been transformed from the inside out. Let's release that grace in Jesus' name.